0: Good afternoon. Is is it? Okay, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're here. Uh, Honored to have you here with us this afternoon. If you're a visitor with us, especially glad uh, to have you. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd be honored to do so at the end of the service. If you have time, stop by the front and love to hear more about you and how God led you to our church. Um, A couple of things. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, and then we're going to end in Ephesians 5. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, go ahead and do that. Grab your sermon notes and get ready to go. Um, a quick announcement, though. We, um, this Friday is our long-awaited night of music. This is an exciting time as a church. We do this once a year. Uh, we come together uh, to listen to these amazing songs that have been inspired by God, written by our very own, own songwriters. And so this Friday night is our, um, is our night of music. We do this, like I said, once a year. Uh, 6.30 we'll meet in this room. Uh, Those within our church who have been gifted and called to express truth through music will be sharing their songs and their stories. And then we'll end the night with our worship team stepping up and leading us in a time of worship. Uh, You're not going to want to miss it. We've got child care for the little ones down the hallway. And uh, the rest of us will be hanging out in here. It's going to be a great night. Now, this is our fifth night of music. And what makes this one extra special is we're actually releasing our first album. And so this is exciting times. Uh, One... Normally, um, a person or a, a church's first album is kind of crummy. This one's actually really good. Like I've had a chance to sample it. I'm telling you, it's good. Um, but, but two, we actually went in the studio with a very low budget, going to try to get three songs uh, by God's grace. We got four songs on the album. R- the fourth one that got added is my favorite, and so I can't wait for you to hear it. So this Friday night, you come be part of Naughty Music. Those uh, CDs will be given away for free. Um, for you just to have, to enjoy, and for God to work through that music in your life. So this Friday, 6.30, here in this room. All right, so we're ready to get started this morning. Um, I'm a little excited, a little apprehensive about the topic. We're going to be talking about the gospel and how the gospel impacts marriage. So we've got to lay a lot of groundwork. First of all, if you're here today and you're married, this sermon applies to you, okay? It applies to you, one, Because whether you've been married for one day or five decades, uh, we still don't have it down yet, right? Still don't have it together, and we're prone to forget what marriage is all about. So for example, how many of you remember your wedding vows? can just recite it verbatim. I got two in the back, and let's be honest, you guys are almost still newlyweds, right? So the reality is what? I said a lot of just really nice things to my wife at our wedding. I don't remember any of them. So I need to be reminded of what marriage is all about and what commitments I've made. And so if you're married and you're here today, this message is for you. Now, if you're single and you're here today, this message is for you, okay? So those of you who are single but don't want to be and hope to not be one day, it's so important to allow God's word to set your expectations and vision for what marriage is to be about one of my favorite marriage counseling books written by Paul Tripp is entitled, What Did You Expect? What a great title for marriage counseling, right? Because why? we All of us step into marriage with a lot of assumptions and misconceptions, and, and then there's a wake-up call. This isn't what I thought it was going to be, so what is it supposed to be? And And so if you're single and you're here today, today is a really important day for you. This is for you. Now, if you're single and you're here today, and you never want to be married ever or ever again, hey, this message is for you. Because embedded in what it means to be husband and wife is what it means to be male and female. And that applies to you, right? So today we are going to look at how the gospel, this truth that we believe as Christians that Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died sacrificially, was buried, and rose on the third day, ascended back to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, where he awaits the day that he will return and call his church back to himself. How does that theology apply to my everyday life and the way that I interact in marriage? We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. These verses we're going to read to begin with are the verses that we read on week one, a couple weeks ago, to start this sermon series, looking at this truth that you and I are created with inerrant, intrinsic, embedded purpose that no other created being can fulfill to bear God's image. If you're a human being and you're here today, you're an image bearer. Now today we're going to look more specifically at what it means to be created male and female. So we're going to start in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And We talked about in week one how this gives our existence as human beings purpose that we are image bearers for God. Nothing else in creation can do that, right? Why? Because we have character, we have will, and the Labrador Retriever doesn't have character, right? You never met a Labrador Retriever who was working on his integrity, trying to become more honest, right? We've never seen an oak tree who's contemplating what it's going to do after college. Why? Because we are created beings in God's image, and nothing else in the created universe however amazing and beautiful it is, can fulfill what you and I have been created to do. Now, what we're looking at specifically today is that opening phrase, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, that's interesting because God speaks of himself with plural pronouns here. Does that catch anybody else off guard? Now, that's not a typo in your Bible. It's not a mistake. As God refers to himself as the Godhead, let us create man in our image. What we're reading about is how God has revealed himself to us as a Trinitarian God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, from time to time, somebody will say to me, you know, Pastor, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. You're absolutely right. Okay, That word we made up. But that word is meant to describe what the Bible does say and how God chooses to reveal himself as one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when God is creating mankind, male and female, he says, let us make man in our image. So something about our createdness is meant to reflect a Trinitarian God. And then he goes on to say, very specifically in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Listen, male and female, he created them. So even more specifically, in our created maleness and femaleness, there's something in that that is meant to reflect who God is. Let us make man in our image, male and female. We'll create them. Now, what I want you to get to as we start here today is this, truth. There is something sacred about your being a male or your being a female. I didn't say special. I didn't say significant or important. There's something sacred about it. Something God-ordained, God-initiated that carries God's purpose in it. If you... Or, male, embedded in your maleness is the sacred identity of God. If you were a female, embedded in your femaleness, there's something sacred embedded in who you are that you would reflect who God is. Now, I'm well aware of the cultural debate, okay? And I'm well aware that there's a lot of tension between the church and culture and misunderstandings. And and I'll be honest with you. I don't think the church has done a great job at addressing this topic, okay? I think in the 20th century, a lot of truth was just assumed. We looked at like the, the leave it to beaver family and said that's what marriage is supposed to be like. And we held it up as a standard. We just assumed it was right. And we never stopped to ask, what does the Bible say? What portrait of marriage does the Bible paint? And then just as importantly, why is it important? And so then culture comes along one day and says, you know what? That's kind of an outdated view of marriage. Let's replace it with something else and let's assume something else. And I don't think the church did a really good job in the 20th century painting a portrait of what godly marriage was supposed to look like and just as importantly, why it matters. Fast forward to 2018, I don't think by and large we're doing a great job today when it comes to the debate. One of the mistakes that we make is we throw words around without defining them. Words like love and respect and submission and honor and cherish and all these words. And we don't stop to explain what we mean. And so we debate. And oftentimes I, I watch a debate on social media and two people are saying the same thing. They just they aren't defining terms and approaching this, this matter with gentleness and humility where they can hear one another. I think it's so important as a church to not just have a stance, but to be willing in gentleness to explain it and to understand it and to show it from a biblical perspective. So what happens is either the church remains silent, sweeps the issue under the rug, we don't talk about that here, or they land in such a harsh stance, there's no room for grace, no room for explanation, no room for embracing those who are struggling with these things. So I'm well aware of that debate and all the landmines that I'm about to step into, okay? Yet, The Bible isn't silent on this topic, and as Christians, we want to hear what God has to say. And what God just said to us is there is something sacred about you being a male and you being a female. According to the Bible, these identity markers are not subjective. They're fixed. That doesn't mean that a person may not want to be a different gender, or feel more closely connected to the opposite of his or her gender identity, but feeling and wanting don't change reality. You' tracking with me? I could feel more like something than I am, or I could want to be something different than I am, but feeling and wanting don't change who I am. Those things are fixed, and more importantly, those things are sacred. If you are a male, you are uniquely created as a male. Being male is hardwired into your being. If you are a female, you are uniquely created as a female. Being female is inherently hardwired into your being. As created beings, gender is inherently embedded in who you are. I want to go to Genesis chapter 2 for just a moment. If you're not familiar with how the Bible's laid out, Genesis 1 is a summary of creation. Six days of creation, the seventh day God rests. Genesis 2 is not a different story. It's day six, blown up and under a magnifying glass. Okay, so it's the same story being told with more detail. When you get to Genesis chapter 2, we find Adam there in the garden. Adam has been created, and God says, as he looks at Adam, it's not good that man should be alone, okay? Okay. That word in the Hebrew language does not mean lonely. He's not looking at poor Adam sitting there on a log thinking, I got nobody to play with. I'm so lonely. God says, it actually means singular. It's not good that man would be by himself, singular. In other words, God's saying, I'm not done creating yet. And then he says what? I will create a su- suitable helper for him. That word helpmate is where we get the word compliment from not like I'm paying you a compliment but like two things that complement one another so what God does he says it's not good that Adam is singular by himself I'm not done creating I'm going to create a helpmate someone to compliment Adam now listen to this this is in Genesis chapter 2 I'm actually going to quote this from another place in the Bible here's essentially what God says in Genesis 2 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. Now, as hard as it is for me to explain how two people can become one flesh, what I'm essentially also trying to explain is the Trinity. You see that reflection? God has embedded in you and I in our maleness and femaleness expressed most explicitly in marriage this sense of reflecting his image as a Godhead, one God in three persons. And something about my marriage and the way I interact with my wife and she interacts with me, we're two different people yet we're one in the flesh. We reflect who God is. And that's inherently hardwired into who we are. Now, Let's talk for a minute about gender equality because that's part of the, the, the current um, context and debate in our culture today. Now, gender equality is not a new thing. That battle has been, has been being fought for some time now. Most of it was fought in the 20th century. Right, But where the century started, where women did not have a right to vote or drive and didn't have equal rights, we saw in the mid to late 20th century this push for civil rights, not just uh, for different ethnicities, but for women as well. Getting the right to vote, having an equal say, being able to run for office and, and have jobs and careers and go to college. And so most of that equality battle was fought in the 20th century, but it's not completely done yet, is it? Right, Because we're still seeing it today. It's playing out primarily in two different areas one with the me too movement with this idea that that women who've been sexually abused or sexually mistreated have been also pushed aside and pressed down by men and not having a voice now there's a voice that's being spoken out so we're seeing some liberation there Um, and then combined with that is kind of the equal pay for equal work movement that's still out there today and and let's just be honest in neither realm are we where we need to be yet right and and so somebody asked me, Do you think that a woman should have equal pay for the same job? I say, absolutely. Absolutely. But, ladies, hear me on this: that's not where your value comes from. That's the way culture will assess your value. Culture will say to you, you are not of equal value unless you're at the same place on the corporate ladder making the same amount of money. Now, I want you to get those things, but if it never happens, I want you to hear God say, you have equal value. Your value is not in what you do for a living or your job performance. Your liberation begins with your ordained, sacred design by God. So I'm all about equal rights. Right? But here's the thing that's not where our value comes from. You are equally valued by God, He created you that way. No oppression can take that away from you. No amount of abuse it's who you are. Now let's talk for a minute. If we can agree on that, that's what the Bible says, that our value is the same, we're equal, then we can have a conversation about function that doesn't put my worth or value in jeopardy, right? So God's saying, I designed it to work this way. I also designed specific functions for male and for female that in some areas are the same, but in some areas are different, Not in any way putting in jeopardy that one matters more than the other or one has more value than the other. It's just different function. Now, when we we look at the way God has designed the church to work, that's the way the church works, too. If you go to 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says the church has all these different members but a lot of different functions, and they're all different. Some are gifted to teach. Some are gifted to serve. Some are gifted with hospitality. Some are gifted with administration. Some have the gifts of healing. We don't all have the same gifts. Does that mean that any one part of the church is more important than the other? Paul says, no. We need each other. There's a complement relationship between the body of Christ. Now that same principle now is applied to marriage when we get to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Neither one is more sacred than the other, more valuable than the other. But there are different functions for men and women according to God's design. So now we go to Ephesians chapter 5. And before we get to marriage, we're going to talk about the church. In verse 18, Paul's writing to all Christians, men and women. He said, here's my words, here's my instruction Do not get drunk with wine. The principle is here is don't be controlled by wine. Don't give yourself to wine in a way where alcohol would control you, your mind, your heart, your actions, for that is debauchery, but instead be filled by or filled with or controlled by what? The Holy Spirit of God. Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit rule in your life, and then he tells us what it looks like if we do this. So you can't just say, I'm filled with the Spirit. Paul says if you're filled with the Spirit, it's going to look a specific way. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We just spent 30 minutes doing that, church. Who, who are we singing to just a few minutes ago? It's a trick question. We were singing unto the Lord, and we were also singing to one another. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, right? This is what will happen. You'll address one another. You'll sing and you'll worship together. Giving thanks, verse 20, always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, if you're paying attention, if you're filled with the Spirit, one way we'll know is you'll be walking in mutual submission to one another. So before we ever get to what it means to be a wife called to submit, the whole church has been called to submit. Right? Am I making that up? We've been called, as Christ followers, to mutually submit to one another. Now, we've got to ask the question, what is meant by that? What does it mean for me to walk in submission to you and you to me? What does that look like? So we go to the example of Christ himself. Now, if submission's a bad thing, then I don't know what you're going to do with Jesus. Because he over and over again says, "I'm, I'm walking in submission to my Father, a couple examples. John six I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You hear that proclamation? Jesus says, I came to the earth to live and walk in submission to the Father. So whatever submission is must be a good thing, must be a beautiful thing, must be a God-honoring, glorifying thing, right? Jesus did it. We see this played out in the garden where Jesus is praying about his own suffering, about going to the cross, and he says, God, if it's possible, Father, take this cup of suffering away from me. But then is that where he stops? What does he say next? Yet, nevertheless, not what I will, not what I want, but your will be done. Over and over again, we see this example of Jesus walking in submission to the Father. And we might go, well, that's Jesus. Come on, preacher it's Jesus the son of god of course he's going to do that right how does that apply to me what does that look like in philippians chapter 2 paul is talking about this humility of christ the submission of christ and he said that jesus didn't even didn't even consider that equality with god was something to be grasped or understood but instead he emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a criminal's cross. That's submission to the Father, isn't it? But you know what he says before he says all that? He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Church, you should think this way about one another. This is what mutual submission looks like and so in ephesians 5 before talking to wives and husbands paul said church listen if you're filled with the spirit there's gonna be this mutual submission between your lives and it's a good thing a god honoring thing a god glorifying thing which then causes me to take a step back and say okay then the secular worldview idea of submission must be different from what the Bible is talking about when it talks about submission. Because if I just understand submission through my uh, 21st century eyes here as American, I think about slavery, I think about oppression, I think about civil rights, I think about equality for women, I think about all the ways that submission has been tainted and twisted and used to benefit the oppressor and to suppress those who have been submitted. And I don't want any part of that. And I hear that oftentimes from Christian women who are reading the Bible, like, I'm struggling with this. I don't want to embrace that. So what does this word mean then? How can submission from God's perspective be good and right and different from the way the world sees submission? This may be helpful for you. So in the original language, the Greek language, this word we translate into submission actually renders in two different forms depending on how you use it, okay? And so if you look at literature from the first century when this was written, um, if you're looking at military documents, the word submission means together under authority. So it's like gathering a platoon together and submission under a platoon leader. It's the military rendering of this word but if you read documents in literature that are not militant or military oriented from this same time period here's what the word means it means a voluntary attitude of cooperating assuming responsibility and helping to carry the burden that sounds a lot like Genesis 2 doesn't it a compliment relationship A voluntary attitude of cooperating, assuming responsibility, and helping to carry the burden. That's what the word submission means. So among us as Christians, there will be this voluntary attitude towards one another of carrying responsibility together and helping to carry one another's burdens. Mutual submission to one another. Now we go into... Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. We begin to get a portrait of biblical marriage. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and in himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, That word submit, we just talked about it. What does that mean? Does that mean that women are to walk in oppression, to become doormats unto their husbands, to be submissive from this secular, twisted worldview? No. God is actually calling you to a good thing, ladies, to walk with a willing attitude, a willing spirit, and cooperation, sharing the responsibility and the burden with your husband and following his lead. That's what it means. Does it mean you don't have a voice? Not according to God's word. Does it mean you don't have equal value? Not according to God's word. Now, we're going to talk to husbands for a moment. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, when you read these verses, you're going to notice the author, Paul, is going back and forth between marriage and the church. Marriage and church. What Jesus is doing and what the husband is doing, what the church is doing, and what the, the wife is doing. So he says, husbands, as he's talking to guys, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then he shifts back to Jesus, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then 28, he goes, oh, wait, 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 let's go back to husbands for a minute. 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Husbands, you've been called to love your wives with a sacrificial love that looks like the same kind of love with which Jesus has loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands just like the church submits to Christ. Husbands, love your wives in the same way that Jesus loves his wife, the church, and lays himself down for her. What does that look like? Sacrifice, cherishing, and nourishing. That's not a picture of oppression, is it? Now, the why question is important why why do we do this what God is saying is this is the blueprint that I've designed life to work by and it listen to me it leads to human flourishing and joy this is not a twisted tainted picture of leadership and and an over dominant male leadership leading to oppression of women the women become a doormat that's not flourishing There's no joy in that there's no life in that that's life taking not life giving Now, here's the beautiful part about this. This is beautiful. Track with me here. So, next, what Paul is going to do in verses 31 and 33 shed a lot of light on this whole equation. Look at 31 with me. He quotes Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What we have to understand that in our Bibles... The first two chapters you read are about God's good and perfect creation. Chapter 3 in Genesis is a major turning point in the story. It impacts everything else you read in the Bible. What happens in Genesis 3? This is what we call the fall. This is where Adam and Eve sin. Now, when we read this account of Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve sin, what we find is that Adam has been commissioned to lead his wife well, protect her, right, to lay his life down for her, and then we find this story where Eve buys into the lie and eats the fruit. The temptation for Adam and for most men in the room is to go, boom, her fault, right? So God comes to them in the garden, and who does he call into account first? Adam. What does Adam do? Oh, God, I'm so glad that you showed up because, listen, that thing you created, she's a mess, I mean, you would not believe what she just did. She not only ate from that tree, she brought it to me, she tried to tempt me, and God says, zip your mouth, Adam. Now, did God also hold Eve responsible for her sin? Yes. But why did he call Adam into account first? Because Adam was commissioned to be leader. And so in that moment where Adam and Eve sinned, what God created to be beautiful and good, a servant leader, leading by laying his life down for his bride, nourishing her and cherishing her, got twisted and distorted at the fall and became what we know today to be oppressive leadership and and doormat submission. That wasn't part of God's DNA and blueprint for life. And there's one verse in Genesis 3 that unveils this to us look at Genesis three sixteen with me real quick so after God calls Adam and Eve out of the hiding and says you're, you're busted let's chat here for a minute God says Adam and Eve listen everything's going to be different now remember how you used to enjoy all this stuff I created it's going to be different let me give you some examples verse 16 he said to the woman I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, I haven't given birth yet. Is that true, ladies? Right? Yes, it's true. What we have to understand is the pain that you went through in childbirth. Like, you put your life at risk to bring a life into this world. Right? That pain you feel is not part of God's original design. That happened because of the fall. In the same way, look at what he says next. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. God is describing what happens in the male-female relationship, the husband-wife relationship, because of sin. Wives are going to inherently have this rebellious heart and not want to follow their husband's lead. True story, isn't it? Ladies, I'm asking ladies, men, keep your comments to yourself. Just give me a quiet nod if you agree. Ladies, that's true, right? This is rebellious nature. I don't want to follow his lead. I kind of want to do my own thing. And what God's saying is, here's what's going to happen now. Going forward, Adam and Eve, a woman's heart will be rebellious. It'll be bent towards or bent away from her husband. And how is the husband's heart not going to be corrupt? He's going to desire to rule over you. Those are both the result of what? The fall, not God's design. So fast forward all the way to the book of Ephesians. What is Paul saying? He's saying that through Christ, through the gospel, God is recovering and redeeming everything good about what he created in you as it, means, as it applies to being a male and a female and a husband and a wife. Yes, ladies, you're being called. To the same calling that Eve had on her life before the fall. To follow your husband's lead. To compliment him. To come alongside him and bear the responsibility and the burden. And to honor him. I go, wait a second. My husband you know, doesn't have his act together yet. I know. That's why Paul said do it just as the church submits to Christ. Not just as he does a good job leading think about that what does that mean so if in my marriage I'm supposed to follow my husband's lead just as the church follows the lead of Christ even on days when he doesn't deserve it one that's a faith move two there's got to be a higher purpose in this thing we call marriage so that makes sense to me husbands let's talk for a minute let's just chat your wives are beautiful you way overmarried. okay let's just get that out there God's grace to us right in a number of ways But she's not always lovable, is she? Sometimes she's a little confusing. Sometimes what worked today doesn't work tomorrow. And just when you think you've got it figured out and you apply the logic, it becomes illogical. Let's just be honest. Sometimes she's hard to lead, right? But notice Paul didn't say, hey, husbands, here's the deal. On the days where your wife is lovable, love her the way I love the church. He didn't say that. He said, husbands, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church when she was what? Unlovable, disrespectful, rebellious, going her own way, wanted nothing to do with me. That's when I loved the church. Husbands, love your wife not in proportion to how lovable she's being, right? Do it in proportion to the way that I loved you. How did Christ love the church? He fasted for the church, Husbands, have you fasted for your wife lately? He went without daily comfort for his bride, the church. Think about that. Jesus didn't have a home. He didn't have a bed. He didn't have a pillow. Always wondering, why did he live this lifestyle of a nomad? Because he was on a journey, on a mission to do what? Love his wife well. Jesus stood between his bride and her enemies, often, in public debate, in public forums. He did it in the temple when he turned over the tables and said, I don't think so. Not in my house, not with my wife. Jesus endured public humiliation for his bride, and Jesus never abandoned her. And Paul is saying, Husbands, that's how you love your wife. Don't give me this fallen world excuse. You've got Christ in you now. He's redeeming that. He's restoring everything back to its God-ordained sacred order and design. He's recovering what was lost in Adam in you. And this is not the call to be the valiant hero just when your wife's life is in risk. This is an everyday thing to nourish and cherish your wives. Listen, listen, Frankly, guys, I get it why our wives don't want to walk in submission. They don't see nourishing and cherishing as our main motives, right? Now, here's the beautiful part about all this. This is where the gospel applies. Let's talk about those rare moments when we get it right, okay? Christians, occasionally we get it right. Every so often in, in, in my marriage to my wife, we do this well. She follows my lead as a compliment, has, a, has an equal voice, but in the end, she honors my decisions, follows my lead. I'm, I'm laying my life down for her, and we're getting it right. Here's what God is saying. In those moments, we are living out a, a, drama, a dramatic representation of the gospel. We're living out the relationship between Christ and the church for all to see. So, the idea here is that my boys who grow up in a Christian home, we teach them we, the gospel, we share the gospel with them, but when it comes to like a, a living example, they would be able to look at dad and say, oh, that's what it looks like to lay your life down for somebody, okay? Now, that happens in the rare moments when we get it right, but what I'm most concerned about, what about all the rest of the moments Well, we're messing it up? Right Where dad isn't loving and cherishing and nourishing mom self-sacrificially. What do we do? These are moments where dad gets to walk out repentance in front of his boys. And there have been more than one occasion in our family where I've pulled my boys aside and said, listen, hey, let's just talk for a minute. Um, The way dad was talking to mom in the car, bro, that's not right. That's not how a man cherishes his wife. I'm asking you to forgive me the same way I've asked God to forgive me for that and in that repentance what do they get to see the gospel and they get to see what redemption looks like see God is redeeming and restoring everything that was lost in the fall Christ's follower he's restoring you back to Genesis 1 and 2 it's process some days you get it right give him the glory some days you don't give him repentance Wives, I get it. It's, it's hard to walk because inherently hardwired in you as a defense mechanism is to rebel against that. Why would that man be for your good? And God says, listen, if you're married to a Christ follower, I, I'm working on him. Trust me. Don't follow his lead in proportion to how well he's leading. Trust me in faith. Just follow his lead. Let me work on him. I'm redeeming him the same way I'm redeeming you. Now, Two things I want to end with. First of all, let's talk about this Ephesians 5 text. Notice how Paul went back and forth from marriage to Jesus to marriage to Jesus. The misunderstanding about this passage of Scripture is that it is primarily a marriage teaching and that Paul is using the church and Jesus as an illustration. Okay, That's a mistake to read this passage that way illustrations are given to us from the Bible to help us understand greater realities that's why Jesus taught in parables he talks about a farmer because why it's not that complex A farmer takes seed he puts it in the ground covers it up walks away and then it grows Oh, okay I get that and so Jesus said well that's how the kingdom is the greater reality so illustrations are meant to serve and explain the greater reality It's a mistake to think that Jesus and the church are the illustration and that marriage is the greater reality. Look at what Paul says at the end. After he says, A man shall leave his father and mother, be united, or hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, he says, This mystery is profound. And if we're still thinking about marriage, right, that means one thing. You're right, Paul. Being married is profound. Confusing, women are crazy. They get these emotion stuff going on. I try to understand it logically, and the woman's over there like, "You're right. This is this is profound because he's hard-headed, prideful, never wants to admit his mistakes." And Paul, look what he says. He says, "This mystery is profound," and I am saying that it refers to what? Not your marriage, Christ and the church. That's the greater reality. Your marriage is meant to be a reflector, a reflection, an illustration of the greater reality of the gospel, Christ and the church. Now that gives our marriage meaning, doesn't it? So my marriage isn't here just to make me happy? Well, good, because we're failing miserably at it, if that's why I got married. Listen to this. The greater reality is the gospel, and marriage serves as the reflection. The greater reality is the gospel. Marriage serves as the reflection between, of the relationship between Jesus and the church. This gives ultimate purpose to marriage. The reason your marriage isn't bringing you fulfillment and happiness is that it's because it wasn't designed to. Nowhere did God say, here's how I designed marriage to work, and I'm bringing this woman to you, Adam. She's gonna fulfill your heart. She's gonna make you happy. She wasn't meant for that, was she? She was meant to be a complement in the role of bearing God's image. Marriage was designed to reflect the image of where true fulfillment and happiness are found. And when we seek our fulfillment and happiness in Jesus alone, mutually submitting ourselves to Christ, listen to this, we flourish and our marriages are a joy and not a burden. My marriage, my existence, my being, male, my being a human being, my my being a husband, my being a father, all of these things are meant to do what? Reflect who God is. That's why we were created. And that's why we were created uniquely male and female. And that's why it's sacred that you are a male and that you are a female. Now, one last little illustration, and I stole this from Nick Hill. He, he gave me this one this week as we were talking through the sermon. Um, Nick was talking about um, a hair dryer. We still use hair dryers, right, 2018? Some of you ladies, yeah. Um, basic tool, basic instrument for getting ready. Some of you ladies are like, no, okay, we, we get it. Um, some of us don't have the option, so I just don't know. But anyway, so the hair dryer is meant to do what? Dry your hair and help you fix it. Okay? You got a little tool, diffuser and all the little gadgets that come with it so you can dry your hair. Now, there's a label, though, on your hair dryer. Do you know what the label says? Do not use it where? In water, okay? Which, by 2018, we get it, right? We understand, right? But that means what? There was a time where somebody thought it would be a good idea to use the hair dryer in the bathtub, and it didn't go well, right? And that's why the little label says... Do not use in or around water for risk of what? Injury or even death. Listen, church, this is God's warning label. God designed marriage with a very specific purpose, and when you use it the right way, the way it was intended to be used, it leads to flourishing and joy, goodness. But when we use it for something it wasn't designed to be used for, it can lead to injury and even death. Here's here's kind of the bottom line question for the church Are we going to allow God's word to be our ultimate truth and authority? And here's another question, church. Once we decide what the Bible says, how are we going to stand in that truth? Are we going to be prideful, hard headed, unloving, bullhorn style Christians? Or are we going to be a loving, kind, gentle, humble church that says, this is what's true. We stand in it. We love you where you're struggling. We embrace you. This is God's truth. It's his word. Come live this way. You follow me? See the difference? Now, I want to land here today, and I don't know where anybody is right now. (laughs) More than likely, you didn't come into church to hear a message on marriage. I get it. It's part of the sermon series. But I believe God has ordained you being here today to hear something. And maybe in some ways um, you've been living with a false perspective on marriage and you've been beating your head against the wall. And maybe today God showed you some things. Like, hey, this is what marriage was created for. This is not what marriage was created for. Now you're beginning to get it. Like, okay, now I need to rethink some things. Maybe you realize, you know what? Yeah, I'm a Christian and, yeah, my, my spouse is a Christian, But honestly, we've been living like the broken fallen Adam and Eve, not like the redeemed Adam and Eve. Maybe there's some men in the room. You've been trying to lead your wife through oppressive, dominant, overbearing leadership, thinking you were justified by the Bible. And maybe today God just wrecked that in you. I hope he did. Because that's not how Christ leads his church. And maybe, ladies, you came in today and maybe you've been trying to figure out what this looks like to walk in submission and and, you, and, and maybe you tried the doormat version and that didn't work and so then you gave in to kind of the rebellious, I'll follow you when you get your act together move and today you're realizing, oh, neither one is really a godly perspective and maybe God would wreck you in that today and say, listen, I'm calling you to follow his lead, to be his helpmate, his complement, a willing attitude <laughs> to carry that burden, that responsibility and to respect him and honor him as part of your image-bearing role. And maybe that's where God's meeting you at today and he's wrecking you. Maybe you're newly married or maybe you're about to be married. and Maybe this is a time for God just to set some real expectations on what to expect out of marriage. Wherever you are, maybe you're single today and talking about marriage helped you understand how God loves you, that Jesus loves you self-sacrificially And maybe today isn't about marriage at all for you. It's just about understanding that Jesus is this ultimate husband who loves his wife well, and you're the wife whom he laid his life down for, he sacrificed for, he fasted for, he protected you, and he stood in the gap for you between you and death. And so maybe that's where you are, and today, for the first time, you would choose to trust in him. Wherever you are, I'm going to pray now, and our worship team's coming up, and our prayer partners are going to come forward, and we'll respond. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this powerful, beautiful reminder from your word. God, I love that you don't call us to arbitrary submission, but God, you paint a beautiful picture of not only what it looks like, but why it matters. God, we confess far too often we view marriage, we view who we are through the world's eyes and rarely through yours. This morning, we thank you, God, that you drew back the curtains and allowed us to see marriage from your perspective. God, I know all across the room, we've got single people, we've got single again people, we've got recently married, we've got I've been married forever people, and yet today, God, I believe you've spoken. So God, now we're asking is that your spirit would work in us and work on us that we might respond. God, I pray especially for the person here. does not have a personal relationship with you that today more than anything that they heard Jesus the beautiful gospel message that you love them that you came to earth to die for them and you rose from the grave that by trusting in you we would have forgiveness of sins and eternal life God, I pray for that person who has not made that decision that today would be the day of salvation, that they would step forward and trust in Jesus. So in all that we do today, we pray all this in his name. So, our worship team leads us, our prayer partners are down front. If you want somebody to pray with you, let's respond.